um, Ephesians 1, verse 15. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. And I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. This is God's word. Let me um, pray for us if I can right now. Father, I ask uh, in these next few moments as we consider uh, what this passage says and what it means, I pray that you would help us. I pray that you would um, help us to make sense of it. And Holy Spirit, I pray that you would apply it into our lives. And we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I love movies that have surprise endings, you know, famous examples. Uh, Famous example is um, The Sixth Sense, good movie. You remember this movie? You know, I see dead people. Um, You know, you're you're watching this movie, you start at the beginning, and you're watching this thing, and you didn't realize it, but you had all sorts of expectations and assumptions about the storyline until you get to the end. And don't worry, I'm not going to ruin it for both of you who haven't seen it. And um, uh, you get to the end, and the ending shatters all of your assumptions. And, you know, it totally rattles everything that you thought about the movie. And so then you go, okay, i got to watch it again. So you watch it a second time, and you start to pick up on this whole other reality about the movie that you didn't know was there. It was always there, you just didn't see it because your expectations were off. And so you're like, yes, that's why they're not looking at each other at the dinner table. Or, ah, that's why that scene is all weird and filmed from that kind of awkward (laughs) angle, right? I mean, it's, your eyes are opened to a reality that was always there, you just didn't have the eyes to see it the first time through. And in a unique way, that's kind of what Paul is praying for in this passage in our text this morning. He is praying that our eyes would be opened up to a reality that's always been there, but just may not be on our spiritual radars. And so look at it. Right in uh, verse 17, he says, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. And I pray also that the eyes of your heart might be enlightened. He's praying that God the Holy Spirit would come and open up their eyes so that they would see a reality that's always been there. They just didn't have eyes to see it. There's something that's so big. They have something in the gospel that is so vast that it takes God himself to come and open up their eyes to see the whole extent of it. So that's what Paul prays for. And he prays for three things specifically if, if you are following along in the passage. And you can follow along in the little outline that I made in the little corner up there. He prays for the church to see and to know their future, their identity, and their power. 
And so what I want to do for the rest of our time is just kind of look at each of these things that, Paul's, that Paul prays for and try to make sense of them, okay? So what's the first thing he prays for? Is he prays for them to see and to know their future. So look at it right there in verse uh, 18. He says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you. He says, I pray that your eyes will be open so that you would see and know this hope that you have in the gospel. Now, hope is an enormous biblical category, and you will make, it will make no sense to you unless you understand that the Bible is a story first. So, okay, what is a story? Class. Um, a story is basically a mission that gets thrown off and gets thrown out of whack. I mean, so you take um, Little Red Riding Hood, for example. Little Red Riding Hood goes to bring her grandmother some food. That's not a story. That's a statement. That's just a fact. It's a weird fact, but it's a fact. But what if some big bad wolf went crazy and ate the grandmother and dressed up in her clothes and now is waiting for Little Red Riding Hood to show up with the, with the food, with the goods, right? Now we have a story. Now, we, now we're wondering, okay, what's going to happen? Someone's been thrown out of whack. Now we have a story and we're interested in paying attention. The Bible is a story. The Bible is the same sort of way. It is a mission that began good, that got thrown out of whack. And so how does the story begin? It begins in creation, where God made everything good, and everything, all the parts of his creation, people, the land, God himself, it was all working together, and it was unified, and it was harmonized. But then people decided to rebel against God as their king and say, we want to be kings of this place. And so sin was introduced into the world, and everything that was once unified and harmonized is now fractured and unraveling and broken. And this is the world that you woke up in this morning, by the way. This is why families uh, fall apart. This is why relationships, your relationships with each other fall apart. This is why your bodies are breaking down and will eventually die one day. I mean, you have, you have been born into a world that is messed up and it's broken. And the whole storyline of the Bible we looked at this last week, it hinges on God's cosmic plan to piece it all back together. This is what it was saying in Ephesians 1.10, is that which was broken, God is planning on fixing and healing all the brokenness and the messed upness of this world. And so the Christian hope, the hope of the Bible, is having this world fixed. In other words, the Christian hope is not ultimately... Jesus extracting people's souls to heaven. That's not the end. The end game, the ultimate hope for the Christian is this world fixed. No more poverty, no more tears, no more death, no more war. If uh, you are going to be around this weekend, Saturday's our first home game. And so um, we'll be out on the Duck Pond Field uh, tailgating as we, as we announced. And yes, this is a shameless commercial for you to swing by and get some barbecue from a man, Alex Godfrey, who's cooking it up. But I love, I love tailgates. This is like one of my favorite things about the falls because usually the weather's really nice and everybody's hanging out and you're eating good food and uh, you, you basically have nothing to do all day and just chilling. You're throwing the football. You're playing some cornhole, which is amazing. And uh, <laughs> you're having an awesome experience. Now, if you d- didn't know anything about app, you would think, okay, this is it. This is why these people are getting together and hanging out and eating and throwing football and playing cornhole. This is a lot of fun. This is where the party is. And you would totally miss it. Because if you think this is a really interesting, cool 
crowd of people, you are about to be ushered into a stadium full of thousands of people, diverse, screaming and chanting and cheering. If you thought throwing a bag of corn into a hole was fun, which it is, don't get me wrong, you are about to be ushered into like a heart thumping, bone-crushing adrenaline rush for three hours. The, this is just the pregame. We're just, we're just hanging out, getting ready to go into the real party. And that's, it, when Christians, when you die and go to heaven, that's the pregame, that's the, that's the tailgate. And it's awesome and it's great. And hopefully there's cornhole. But um, <laughs> the ultimate thing, the ultimate hope, is the actual game. It is the new heavens and the new earth. This world re-pieced back together and healed and fixed and restored. And this is the hope. This is the hidden reality that Paul is praying that their eyes and your eyes would be open to see it. And the question is, do you? Do you see it? Now, if you're someone in here who identifies yourself as a Christian, if you think that the ultimate hope is getting to heaven and trying to bring as many people to heaven as you can with you, then this forces you into only really valuing and emphasizing evangelism and missions. Because what you've done is you've really drawn this separation between the spiritual and the material, and therefore the spiritual is the thing that only really matters, prayer and worship and stuff like that, and you'll downplay your schoolwork and your involvement in the world, and you'll be forced into really looking down your nose at and not being able to make any sense of people who want to be godly businessmen and godly businesswomen and godly lawyers and godly teachers. Because the only thing that really matters in the end is just evangelism and getting people to heaven. But if the ultimate reality, if the ultimate hope is this world fixed, that changes everything. Now you have a totally different perspective about how you relate to the world and how you relate to your schoolwork and how you relate to everything. That is the hope that is held out for you. If you're someone in here who um, does not identify yourself as a Christian, then, then you have a similar um, question to, to answer. Because everybody, including you, has to explain the origins of the universe and the destination of the universe. And so if you're not a Christian, if you, if you haven't bought into the Christian worldview and the Christian explanation to those questions then the most popular explanation on the block is, is that you came from nothing but uh, primordial soup, and you're going to nothing but dust. And so if you came from nothing, and if you're going to nothing, why assume that there's any meaning at all in the middle? There can't be. But some of you have actually bitten that bullet and say, yeah, of course, it's all meaningless, it's all worthless, nothing really matters. But I hope that you see that this biblical vision that this, that this passage is painting for you explains that gut instinct in your soul where you realize you know there's more. You know it feels like there is more than just meaningless. You're coming from nothing and going to nothing. This explains the ache. This makes sense of it. Because you know that this world is not the way it's supposed to be and one day Jesus is going to ultimately fix it. And that's what you ultimately want. So that is the thing that Paul is praying for initially. This is the first feature of this new way of seeing, is that you know and that your eyes are open to the hope that you have been called to, the future, your future. But Paul prays for a second thing, that their eyes would be opened up to their true identity. So here it is. It's the second part of verse 18. He prays that their eyes would be opened in order that they would see or that they would know the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. 
Now, Paul's been talking a lot about inheritance up in chapter 1, where we inherit God, we're going to inherit the new heavens and the new earth, this world made fixed. But you've got to wonder, what does God get out of this? What does he get out of the deal? I mean, if you think about it from the standpoint of like an investor, you know, where an investor is looking for companies that are thriving, Google, Apple, whatever, and I'm going to put money into that because I'm going to get a lot of money back in return. If I invest in some crummy, run-down, bankrupt company, I'm going to lose my money. So here's what God does is he looks at the playing field and says, okay, you see these really messed up, broken, sinful, bankrupt people? I want to invest in them. I'm going to give up everything for them. I'm going to give up my son, everything that I hold dear to me for them. And you've got to wonder, okay, God is giving and he's giving and he's investing and investing. What does he get in return? You know what he gets? He gets you. That's what he gets. I mean, look at it. it this is talking about God's inheritance right there. Uh, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. This is talking about what he gets. What he gets in return is you. You are his inheritance. If you are the saints, and that's just, talk, that, that's just Bible language for Christians, for the church. His inheritance is you. He gave up everything for you. You are the thing that is his treasure. He actually loves you and likes you. If you are united to Jesus, when he looks at you, your true identity is his beloved treasure. You are his inheritance. You are what he gets out of the deal. And this is the hidden reality. This true identity is the hidden reality that Paul is praying that your eyes and these, their eyes would see. And the question is, do you see it? Because, if we're honest, I think a lot of us live our lives betraying the fact that we actually believe this. Because I think underneath it all, underneath all of our spiritual enthusiasm, underneath it all, we really feel deep down that God doesn't like us. In fact, God is not interested in our happiness. God just wants us to feel miserable. In fact, some of you know that you are in God's will only when you feel the most miserable, right? I mean, I don't think you would ever articulate this, but my guess is if we really dug deep down into your heart and into the way that you think, this is what you think. That you, okay, so for example, you know, you, maybe some of you think, I really want to go into a sorority this year, but I'm thinking God's probably going to close that door and not let me do it because he just wants me to be miserable this year and not do what I really want. Or uh, doing art for the rest of my life would be awesome. I would love to do that. But God probably doesn't want me to do that. He probably wants me to be a missionary or something, right? <laughs> or you think, okay, I, I don't really want to open up my Bible because if I do, God's just going to smack me with something really hard and make me pay for the fact that I haven't touched it in the three weeks. <laughs> I don't know why we're laughing, but we're laughing. <laughs> but I think that we think that. We really think underneath it all, yeah, God loves me, but he doesn't like me. He wants me to be miserable and he's going to smack me for the rest of my life. You know, uh, Catherine and I have been married for about four and a half years now, and it's interesting to look over the ebb and the flow of our relationship because um, there, has been time, there have been times where we love each other, but we don't like each other. <laughs> Meaning, uh, you know, we still come home to each other at the end of the day. We're still committed to each other. Uh, but she doesn't like me because I'm a total jerk to be around, and I don't like her because she can be a jerk to be around sometimes too. Love you, Catherine. But, that is, um, <laughs> but that's, that's the way it's been sometimes. It's not, it's not fun where, it's like, where we can honestly look back at some periods in our relationship where we can say, yeah, I loved you, 
but I did not like you. <laughs> and I think that's how some of us translate our relationship with God. It's like he loves us, of course, because he has to, but he doesn't like us. He doesn't, he's not out for our joy. He's not out for our happiness. And this text looks at those lies for what they are and calls them lies. Because that is not true. He gave up everything for you. You are what made it worth it for him. You were the one thing that he didn't have. That he said, I'm willing to give it up all just to get you. That is your true identity if you are in him. If you are united to Jesus by faith. And so we're going to talk a lot more about this next week. But what I want to do just on this point is just leave, leave you with a question here. Do you see God as rejoicing over you with singing? Or do you see him as standing over your shoulder tapping a clipboard? How do you see him? In other words, do you see him as actually desiring you or just merely tolerating you? Because Paul assumes that we don't see reality rightly. And he prays that our eyes would be opened, one, to see what our ordained future is and to see our true identity. But he prays for one last thing. And I just kind of want to camp here for the rest of our time. He prays... uh, for them to see the power that they possess. I get this in verse 19, and this is just the third little phrase that he uses. I pray that they'd, if their eyes opened up to see uh, and to know in order, whatever it said in verse 18, his incomparably great power for, the rest, for, uh, for us who believe. And so Paul just kind of camps on this idea, and so that's what I want to do. Is just for the rest of this passage, that's what he talks about, and so I just want to talk about it for the rest of our time. But this can get really dense and thick, and so what I want to do is just look at this idea of power from three different angles to try and make this a little bit more digestible. I want to look at it from the angle of the what, the who, and the where. Okay, The what, the who, and the where. Hopefully this will make sense as we go. First, what is this power that Paul is talking about? Verse uh, 19, he just, the, the second half of verse 19, he explains, that power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead. Okay, Paul claims that if you are united to Jesus by faith, you have access to the same sort of power that raised Jesus from the dead. This is incredible. Because what this is saying is that you have access to power that can bring life to dead places. That you have access to the the kind of strength and the kind of power that can move into the areas that are decaying and dying and bring something to it where life is flourishing again. If this is not hard for you to believe, then you aren't listening to this yet. He is praying and knowing that you have access to this type of power, resurrection power. So, okay, Who has it? That's the second question. Who has this sort of power? Uh, Look at verse 20 and 21. This is talking about Jesus. It says, After Jesus was raised from the dead, he was ascended to heaven and is sitting at God's right hand, royally enthroned, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion. This is strong, big language. Because what this is saying is that Jesus is bigger and greater than everything. He's greater and bigger than your sin. He's greater than the struggles and the doubts that you have. He is greater than the lies that you are tempted to believe. He is greater than Satan and demons and everything else. He is the one ruling in heaven, ordaining all things. He is the sovereign king who has all of this power. Okay, so what is the power? Resurrection power. Who has it? Jesus ruling in heaven. That raises a third question. Okay, 
Where is it, though? I mean, that's great and all, Paul, that Jesus has all this resurrection power ruling from heaven, but I don't see it. Where is it? Well, Paul answers it in verse 22. He says, And God placed all things under his, that's Jesus' feet, and appointed him to be head over everything for the church. In other words, it's saying Jesus is ruling over the whole universe in the interest of his people, in the interest of the church, which is what? Verse 23, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Okay, see if you can wrap your head around this real quick. Paul is praying that we would see Jesus enthroned in heaven with all power, renovating the universe, fixing it, healing it, in the interest of the church, by the means of filling the world with his church. You see, that's what's going on in verse 23, which is his body, which is still talking about his church, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Let me, let me take another stab at it. Here's what um, one of the commentaries I read this week. He put it this way. Jesus is changing the world for the good of the church by means of the church. Here's what this means. Do you want to know where God's power is? You know, you, you, you get all these biblical ideas of God being powerful and strong. You're like, okay, where is that? Here's the Bible's answer. It's in the church. And I know when you hear that, you think, that sounds crazy. And by the way, when when the Bible uses the word church, it's not referring to an actual building. It's referring to the people in the building. Never is talking about a building. But you've got to think about this. This, I mean, is Paul serious? This sounds crazy. Is he talking about really those really weird people that huddle together on Sunday morning, which are usually really boring and hard to be around? That's where God's power is? Yeah, that's what the Bible says. That's what God, where God's power is. If this doesn't make sense to you yet, then, then you're tracking, because this is a hard pill to swallow. But think of it in these terms. When the church came into its own in the first century, it came into existence in the context of the most wealthiest, strongest, aggressive empires of all time, the Roman Empire. And the church was really just this ragtag handful of fishermen and women. They were not socially savvy. They were not politically powerful. But here they get together, and because their claims about the world threatened the sovereignty of the Roman Empire, what they decided to do was aggressively exterminate and stamp out all forms of Christianity. And so what they would do is um, saw Christians in half and feed Christians to lions and tie them up on poles and light them on fire to illuminate their gladiator games. I mean, they aggressively sought to exterminate all forms of Christianity, the most powerful, aggressive empire in the world, in this little ragtag group of Christians. 2,000 years later, which one prevailed? Do you want to know where the Roman Empire is today? You can go to Europe and look at the artifacts of it or look in a textbook. Do you want to know where the church is today? It's in this room. And it is spread out by the millions across the world, crossing social lines, cultural lines, racial lines, every sort of lines. Take these statistics for what they're worth. I I looked this up this this week. There will be 4,000 new Christian churches in the world this week. There will be 16,000 new African Christians today. 16,000 and another tomorrow. And another 16,000 the next day. In 1949, in China, there were one million people who followed Jesus. 
In the year 2000, despite execution there and every form of uh, oppression, there are 123 million people in China who believe in Jesus. Kings and kingdoms have passed away and tanks and violence and force has tried to exterminate the church and they can't because Jesus himself said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. This resurrection power embodied in Jesus who is enthroned in heaven and played out by the church is the hidden reality that he is praying for them and for us to see. And the question is, do you see it? Because if you are anything like me, this is, this is hard to see. And if you feel anything like me, if you are a Christian in the room, it feels like you are uh, weak and inadequate and you are contributing more to the ruin of the world than to the resurrection of it. But this text is looking at you and saying, the power that you have access to is the power that you have received in the gospel. And so what that means now is that you can be agents of his kingdom that move into the dark and the dying places of the world to bring life there. How? Here's how. You are now enabled to show compassion to people because you have first been shown compassion by Jesus. You are now enabled to forgive other people of their sins because Jesus has first forgiven you when you sinned against him. You are now enabled to sacrificially serve the people around you because Jesus has first sacrificially served you. You are now enabled to love your enemies because Jesus has first loved you as his enemy. But you look at this and you say, okay, this looks so weak and irrelevant. Love and compassion and service and forgiveness, that's going to do anything? And the Bible looks and says, yeah. That is where the power is and what God is doing to use you to advance his kingdom in the world and to bring it back together through love and through compassion and through things that look weak but will not be stopped. All right, let me wrap up here. Uh, If you're a Christian, Paul looks at you and says, this is what you have in the gospel. And he prays that your eyes would be opened up to see it. He says, you have a hope and a future. And the question is, can you see it? Or do you really just live moment by moment without any reference to the future? And that's why you're anxious and cynical and stressed out. Paul prays and says that you have a new identity as God's treasured possession. And the question is, can you see it? Or do you really think of God as this angry dictator just monitoring your behavior, waiting to smack you and bring you back into line? And Paul says that you have access to power that can bring life to the dead places of the world. And the question is, can you see it? Or do you just cower away from the world and the culture and take refuge in Christian bubbles because you really think that sin and death is stronger than Jesus is. Regardless of where you are spiritually, these are the blessings that are held out for you in the gospel. And so what I want to do in response to this text is just pray and pray in the same way that Paul does, that our eyes, my eyes, would be open to see these things and to start living by them. Okay? So please uh, just pray with me. Father, these... um, These realities are too huge for us to take in on our own, so please help us. Don't let our hearts uh, slam shut on these realities, but give us eyes to see the richness of the gospel. And I pray that these things would shape us and transform us into people that are humble and joyful and hopeful and loving to our friends and our enemies. We are incapable of this on our own. But you are strong, and so we pray that you'd help us. In Jesus' name, amen.